Um, we've been in these verses and we'll be in these verses for all four um, sermons in this Advent series this year. We're taking a look at the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, the way we're naming this, the, the, the sermon series is God's birth story. Um, just even this past week, um, I think I saw on, on Facebook somebody announcing the birth of their baby by holding up a picture with a little ultrasound. Um, those little black and white little ultrasound deals. And so um, really Matthew 1, um, Luke 2, um, those are God showing his ultrasound to the world. Just so excited about um, the birth of his son Jesus um, with, uh, with even more hope and expectancy um, than parents um, have showing their, their ultrasound. And so this is God's birth story that we're looking at, God's entry into um, human history. And this morning in particular, we're going to be looking at verses kind of 19 down to 21. And we're going to look at the birth story through the eyes of Joseph. Um, Joseph is somewhat the, the neglected character and the birth narrative. Um, part of that is um, we don't see Joseph during Jesus's adult ministry. Um, the last time we see him is in Luke's recording of um, Jesus staying behind when his family leaves Jerusalem and the temple. And so um, following that, we have no, no record of Joseph. And so the, the thought, or at least assumption, is that um, Joseph probably died um, before um, Jesus reached his adult years. And so he, he leaves the scene, um, but he plays a pretty, perfect, per, pretty important role in the birth narrative itself. Um, and he's not given the angel's announcement about what's going on until after um, the fact, really. Uh, Mary comes and and Mary receives this announcement from the angel and is told what's going to happen before it happens. Um, Joseph's in the, the different um, shoe. And so for him, it is a story of suffering. And um, for him, the incarnation of Jesus comes into some of the most raw emotions that you can think of. Um, the thought of a fiance or a spouse um, um, committing adultery and being unfaithful. Um, and those kind of emotions are kind of what, what God enters into in the story of Joseph. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Um, where I hope to go is talk specifically about suffering and how the biblical story of the advent of Jesus meets um, Joseph. And what I found in my own life and pastoral ministry that typically um, there are three um, phases or three stages open to suffering people. Um, the first one is just to suffer godly, means that you're just, you're suffering and you apply biblical wisdom. The second um, stage is when you begin to um, find a solution for the fear um, that tends to go along with, with suffering. Um, and there is a solution biblically to the fear that comes in the solution in suffering, if that's stage two. Um, stage three is actually, which not everybody gets to, not everybody gets to stage two or stage one, but stage three um, is actually having um, joy and suffering. And, and that isn't a, a happy, happy, happy all the time, 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 some kind of disconnect, but Maybe you've known some people who've been able to, to suffer um, and still hold on to the joy of the Lord. And so we're going to see God take Joseph through those stages. Um, and I wonder, as you're thinking through your own life and whatever suffering you might be going through, if you could do some self-analysis, where are you? Um, and what is the invitation given to you in Jesus um, to suffer um, in a way that not only brings um, honor to God, but in which you can find deep um, joy and hope? And so that's where we're going this morning. Um, I'll read to you from... Um, God's word, as I said, we're in Matthew 1, I'll read verses 18 all the way to 25. This is the word of our God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Why don't I pray this morning before we consider this text. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're thankful for your son, whom you sent to us to be our savior, our hope, and our joy. And so during this time of year, to help encourage us during every other time of year, we focus our eyes on him, on his incarnation, on the joy of his name, on his um, saving work on the cross and in the empty tomb. And so, Lord, we come this morning as your people. Um, We would drink deeply from the fountain of life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we dive into this passage again. It's uh, Joseph is a neglected character. And what I want you to see first, which the scripture very clearly lays out in verses 19 and 20, is that Joseph is suffering. We don't know how he finds out. We don't know if Mary um, comes and talks to him. We don't know if uh, maybe somewhere down the line Mary just simply starts to show um, that she's pregnant and, and he has to ask the question, what's going on? But Joseph's first engagement with the gospel narrative is one of deep and unspeakable pain. As far as Joseph knows, Mary, his fiance, remember back in those days, um, even though they haven't had the marriage and consummated um, the marriage um, to be a fiance, they would speak of one another as husband and wife. And so Mary, his fiance slash wife, is now um, known to be with child. She's admitting that she's with child. And so Joseph does the logic and the only explanation that he can think of is that Mary, his fiance wife, um, has cheated on him. Not only has cheated on him, but apparently is lying to him about it. She's not coming and saying, I did, you know, there was this um, grave sin, you know, I sinned against you, I'm so sorry. She's um, continuing on as if she was a faithful fiance um, wife, but nevertheless is pregnant and the baby is not Joseph's. And there are, there are a few things in really the history um, of the relationships in the world, not just in, in our time, but overall is the betrayal of one spouse to another, um, the adultery or an affair. And so think for a moment, if you can, placing yourself into Joseph's shoes, the amount of pain and suffering that he must be going, to, going through because of the glorious truth that God entered into the world. And that somehow is how it goes for us, that God's doing an amazing thing, but our first engagement with it is deep pain and deep confusion. And Joseph, being raised as a a godly Jew um, with integrity, decides to exercise the biblical wisdom he has, even with a heart of compassion. And so you see him already in what we would call the first stage of suffering. He loves Mary. He decides, even though she has apparently cheated on him, committed adultery um, against him, that he wants to divorce her quietly. Um, There were options that he could have made that very public. He could have told everyone there, and it then within biblical law. Could have been a societal knowledge of what Mary had done. But Joseph had already determined, I do have um, biblical grounds for divorce, um, and yet I, I love Mary, I still care for her, and so I'm still going to do this Um, thing quietly 
And so you see Joseph here just simply exercising biblical wisdom. He grew up a Jew. This was an incredible time of suffering. And what does Joseph fall back on? He falls back on his God and on the word of his God um, to help him navigate what he's supposed to do. It doesn't make it any easier. Um, in fact, you, you see him here and, and moving into the next angel addressing his, his fear. It seems as the text um, relays what's going on that Joseph has already made the decision. He knows in his mind biblically what's required, but he's finding difficulty in actually carrying it out, which is so often where we find ourselves in suffering especially in suffering that involves relational discord with someone else, is that you know exactly what the Bible says. And you know about the faithfulness of God. You know what has to be done. And yet there's this pause, this deep, gut-wrenching, emotional pause, because you know to be faithful to your God, to exercise biblical wisdom, is still going to create a tremendous amount of pain and it's not going to be something that in the end you can tie a neat bow on. It's not necessarily going to be this nice story that you're going to tell around Christmas dinner parties later on. But nevertheless, you're in it. And the Bible has given you instruction on what needs to happen. And so we see in this the, the narrative that you see running through the Bible. People suffering, suffering well. Godly suffering, we would call it, because they've been instructed in the word of God. And the word of God is very rich. God didn't just want to save you and give you a get-out-of-hell-free get card. He didn't just say, all right, here's salvation. See you again at your death. He gave a very robust word describing every area of life. And in fact, one of the reasons we should believe that this really is the word of God, that God really did speak into the world in the Bible, is because it speaks to every area of life. We should doubt the accuracy and the veracity of the Bible if it didn't speak to those things. But we run through the pages of this book and what area of life do we see not spoken about? Is there any, is there any problem we may face that there is not a biblical principle that we can't bring to bear? Our God has loved us so well because he knew we would suffer so deeply and he wanted us to know what to do in those circumstances. And so we see Joseph, a man of integrity, a, a biblical Orthodox Jew, suffering well because of the wisdom of his God. And I'll, I'll tell you um, now that I am, I am so proud of you as a congregation. Um, towards the end of the year, times like this, um, I do some assessment and think back on um, what has the Lord done in our congregation. And um, our story is different than, than other church plants. And our story for the past four, four and a half years um, has been one where people have walked through and are still walking through deep, deep, suffering and challenges. Um, it makes it somewhat unique for me as a pastor because people want to say, well, tell me what God's up to in your congregation. Um, and I can't because I can't say, well, there's so-and-so and this happened in their life, but it's really cool because of this because, you know, I'm, th these are very deep and private moments of suffering for you. And so um, sometimes I wish that, that you could sit down and I could somewhat, you know, change the names to protect people and I could tell you some of the stories and, and each of you knows your own story um, but the habit is to think, especially in suffering, I'm the only one. Um, and really the story of our congregation, the story of our church plant, um, when, I, when I talk to donors and I tell stories generally, very generally, about stories of suffering, I say, what God's been doing in Culpeper um, is he's been providing this little outpost, um, this, this little missionary hospital where people can come and they can be loved and they can suffer well and they can hear of God's peace and they can hear of God's wisdom and have people around them. And so... Um, I can, even looking out over you, it's, it's, uh, I, I wish you would know 
the stories that were going on. And I'm so proud of you as a congregation for what you've done. Um, the, the ways that you've contributed, when you put out chairs, when you put money into the offering, when you participate in a community group, when you play an instrument behind me, yes, you're helping a service, a, a church service go on, and you're helping advertising and printing and all of these different things. But really what you're doing is you're helping to support a local group of suffering people. I've never seen people suffer like y'all have, like we have. Um, and yet the Lord's been faithful, and he's been, he's been true to us. Um, Iowa did my, my first six years of ministry in Mississippi, and we were down there during, um, during Katrina, and, um, and God actually blessed us during Katrina. Our power went out, um, and we had some friends, and they had a lake house, and, um, and we got to stay in their lake house in the aftermath of Katrina um, when their, their power was out. So we stayed in their power, power-filled lake house while they didn't have power. Um, but immediately after Katrina, I was able to take a group of um, a youth group um, service project down to Gulfport, Mississippi, um, and we saw Gulfport, and we saw Biloxi, and we saw the amazing damage that that hurricane had done. And, um, and what ha- would happen, and we went around the coast and would look at the different homes that had been, um, been leveled. And whenever you, you see storms like that and they hit a home, it tells you two things about the home. It tells you what the home was made of and what its foundation was like. And that's what suffering does for a people. That's what it does for anyone. It tells you what kind of stuff you're made of. How has God strengthened you? Where are your weak parts? What have you learned? What have you not learned? How is the structural integrity of your life? But, but even if all of those things fail and the house falls in completely, you still see the foundation, the God in who you trust that is firm and true. And so, you know, a lot of those homes right there um, on, the, on the Gulf Coast after Katrina, all that was left was the foundation. Um, and, I, and I wonder, Joseph, considering Mary... Um, now, and this baby that wasn't his, and this decision that he had to comp- contemplate, didn't wonder if he was just going to be a foundation left over, that he was just going to collapse under the weight and difficulty of this difficult circumstance that the Lord had brought him into. But at least the first thing you see is he suffered well. He understood the wisdom of God. He knew that his God was taking him into this, um, and he was trying to apply the best he could the wisdom that God had given him. And so that's the first step. But God didn't leave him there. God took him now into the next stage. You you see, based on what the angel said, that Joseph was afraid. And I think that you all have felt that experience of being in suffering, of knowing what God's called you to do, even having a, a firm faith in the midst of suffering and challenges, and yet having overwhelming fear. Well, God gives here the solution to fear. He gives you a way to find a way out and to counteract the fear that you're facing. And the angel comes to Joseph and the angel tells Joseph specifically down here in um, verse, verse um, 19. After he, uh, in verse 19, when he decided to divorce her quietly, in verse 20, as he considered these things, the angel came and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so this angel comes in and confirms to Joseph God's sovereignty. Joseph, God is doing this. God is at work in this situation. The the functional member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is at work doing what the Holy Spirit does, working God's will in the world. 
And so Joseph could have a confidence that though he was walking through something very difficult, though he was applying biblical wisdom, though he knew what needed to be done, he could hear from God through this angel that this was God's sovereign work, that nothing happens, that the Lord has not ordained for his own glory in the end and the good of his people, though it may be intense suffering um, in the meantime. And so Joseph's given comfort. And what that comfort does in the midst of that is it provides us with two things. It provides us first with perspective. And it's so difficult for us in suffering to approach it from God's perspective. It happened in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms. And um, you're almost tempted to bail on a psalm halfway through because it's so discouraging in the first half. And the psalmist just says, listen, God, where in the world are you? I am, I'm a Christian. I look out in the world. I see people who aren't Christians thriving. I see them healthy. I see them in big homes. I see them with large bank accounts. They're not the ones that ISIS is pursuing. They're not the ones that have people at their workplace dismissing them and demeaning them because of their Christian faith. They're not the ones that are sorrowing over their sin, and yet they're the ones that are thriving. Where are you, God? Why are Christians, why do Christians have it so bad in the world? So it goes that way for the first half of the psalm. And then he switches and he says, paraphrasing, the Joe paraphrased version, then I came to myself. And it says, I went into the temple. And that's significant for Christians because Jesus said that he would be the fulfillment of the temple. That he would be the place where man and God could come together and know that in that coming together there was peace and salvation. He said, when I came into the temple, then I discerned their ways. And he goes through and he says, now I realize that if you are my God, what do I have to fear? And these folks who may be rich now will not be rich later. These folks who may think that they have good relationships now, yet will spend eternity in broken relationship with you. How much do I have because I am saved? How much do I, do I know and how much can I take joy and hold up under these very real sufferings because I have your perspective, Lord, on what's going on in my life? The second thing, though, it gives is God's promises. And it's based on his character. I wonder if you've had times, if you're a parent, you can th or you can think back on your own childhood, when there are moments when a parent has to say, trust me. They know, or maybe they've tried to explain, and it just hasn't come through to the child. And the child struggling just doesn't understand. Why do we have to do this? Why do I have to do that? Why do we need to make this move? Why do these things have to happen? Mom and dad, I don't understand. And mom and dad have to say, just going to have to trust me, as difficult as that is. And in that is this promise and this trust in the character of their parent that they are trustworthy and that that promise that they will see them through is true. And it counteracts fear. Because fear is when you look ahead of you and you see the pain train coming down the track and you start to tell yourself, I'm not going to be okay. That is going to end me. If that happens, my whole world will fall apart. And God's perspective and his promises, both within his sovereignty, says, it's okay. I'm with you. Trust me. I will not leave you. And so Joseph, being entered here at stage two, God's helping him fight fear. And the angel's saying, Joseph, this baby is not the result of sin. This baby is not the result of adultery. Mary has not been unfaithful to you. 
um, you can still take her to be your wife. This baby is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that did not change his circumstances at all. Do you hear me? It wasn't like the angel went to the whole town and said, all right, listen, we've got a couple here. They're not married yet. They're engaged. Wife's pregnant. Uh, we need to let you, everybody know, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no shame or dispersion cast on this family. It's not like all of a sudden the angel's going um, to come um, to Herod and tell Herod, don't try and kill this child when you hear of his birth. Doesn't even seem Joseph, as we read the narratives later on, the thought is even that as Jesus grows up, he bears the name of someone who may have been born under sketchy circumstances. And so it appears that Joseph, maybe even after Jesus was born, bore the weight of lies or slander or gossip about himself. It didn't change his circumstances at all. He would still suffer dearly for the entry of God into the world, having the honor of being the, the legal father of Jesus, the incarnate God. And so into that suffering, God says, I'm sovereign, I've got this, I get you, you can trust me. But it doesn't leave him there, and I, 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 I need to enter in at this point, because I know many of you have at least gotten that far within suffering. Um, Presbyterians, especially Reformed Presbyterians, are, are drilled in the sovereignty of God, and so I can't tell you the number of times I've sat, da sat down with somebody and suffering, and they'll tell me, it's okay, I know God's sovereign. Um, well, that's true, but understand there's a very tricky um, secular version of that. And so most secular people, even the best of secular counseling, will try to get people at least this far. They'll say, okay, listen, you're suffering. Here's some principles. Here's some wisdom, maybe even from the Bible, of some things you can do in your suffering to make the suffering go a little bit better. Here's some good tips, some effective ways to suffering. And that counselor might even say, it's okay, I want you to know in the end it's going to be all right for you, and you can trust in the general goodness of creation, or you're a good person, and in the end good things happen to good people. To, to know biblical wisdom, and to think that things will generally end up well for you in suffering, isn't just a Christian thought. And so Joseph isn't left there. God takes him even beyond that, and he says this, she will bear a son, this is verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is in this naming of the son that would be born and the responsibility, which we'll look at in two sermons of Joseph to actually follow through on that and name Jesus. There's given this outrageous prophecy from this angel. There has never been a prophecy like this, and there never will be a prophecy like this in the Bible. This is the ultimate prophecy that could be given. This was the thing that God's people had been looking for for years and years and years. Finally, the Savior would be born, and that Savior is named here as that name is given to Joseph to be given to his newborn infant son soon to be born, and that name is Jesus. And, and for us, it's a very, very normal name, um, Jesus. Um, we, um, we've, especially for, if you come from a Hispanic background, Jesus is an even more normal name. For us, it might be um, Joshua. Um, I, I'm part of Acts 29, I assess church planners, and um, I assessed a church planner who was going to Mexico um, a few months ago, and his name was Jesus Rodriguez, but nobody knew how to do the little thing over the U when we typed it out, and so 
Um, we were assessing Jesus and all the stuff, and we thought he was probably a pretty legit to plant a church. And so um, <laughs> kind of the running joke on that. And so um, back in those days, the, the, the name Jesus um, actually means God saves. It comes from Joshua. Um, uh, Joshua put, which is Hebrew, um, into the Greek is translated Jesus and so a very normal name for us, but it meant God saves. And if you think back on the Old Testament character of Joshua, um, God was telling something about what Joshua would do. He would be the one who ushered God's people into the promised land. And so now comes this prophecy. And so God is identifying this child and not only giving hope, but giving a, a certainty. And so when, when, we, when we name children, we give identity and hope. And so I can remember going back and, and naming um, all of our all of our kids and, and thinking about different names. And I don't know if you did this or not, but there were certain names that were off the table. Um, not, not just because they were funny rhymes or we didn't want our kids to get made fun of, you know, later on, um, but because we knew people who, um, who weren't really, really great folks or reputable. Like, well, we can't name them that because we know what, how he turned out. And, and that was silly, like as if we name after him. That's a, but for us, there were certain names that were off limits because to some degree, we hoped that our children would live up to the names they were given. There was this hope in it. And so it wasn't just a, you know, a, a, a throw a dart at the family tree and come up with something. Um, there was a lot of hope. But, but for the Lord, the Lord doesn't hope. Um, he doesn't need to. Because he does what he wants. And whatever he desires, he accomplishes. And so God, in giving this name to this child born, he's not just giving a hope, he's giving a certainty. One of the more powerful words in all of this scripture is right there in verse 21, and it is the word will. Name him Jesus, because he will save his people from his sins. Kids are not even born yet. It's not like we were waiting to see. You know, hit some kind of spiritual SAT when he's 16, and yeah, that might come true. There's certainty here in the naming of Jesus that he will accomplish this goal. Jesus' destiny, Jesus' mission, the thing that God had given him to do was never in question. And so God wanted him to be named Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua because his name would not only identify him, but tell those around him what he would accomplish. He was the Messiah and not just save them like the first Joshua did by bringing them into the promised land, but save them from their sins would finally do the thing that no one had been able to do, to do so far and cleanse them and forgive them to provide an atonement and forgiveness so God's people could be with God forever and God could remain both just and the justifier of those who would place their faith in this child. It is an outrageous prophecy. And it tells us three things when we take that name of Jesus upon us and the first thing that it tells us is that um, we actually do need saving. You understand that? If God names someone Savior, it means you need saving. And if God says in the prophecy that he will save people from their sins, then you need saving from your sins. It is a diagnostic. It tells us what the problem is with our hearts. We look at a lot of different things and problems and we look for the silver bullets, the solutions, the self-help books, the New Year's resolutions, the gym memberships, the counselors, the therapists, and we're trying to solve our problems. Well, he labels it here, our problem is sin. And the solution is Jesus, which literally means savior. 
the one who would save his people from their sins. So if that's the first thing, we need saving. The second thing we see is that we can't save ourselves. As far as I know, no angel showed up to your mom or dad and said that you were going to be the one who saved you from your sins. Your name still might be Joshua, but you're not this Joshua. Your name might be Jesus, but it's not this Jesus. This is the one who is designated to be Savior, which means that we can finally stop looking to ourselves to save ourselves. We can set down our self-salvation projects. We can stop padding our spiritual resumes. We can take one big sigh of relief and realize that salvation is not to be found inside of us. No more soul searching, no more analysis paralysis, no more hopes will finally live up to expectations that salvation exists and it's outside of us. And it's in this guy, thirdly, who will save us from our sins. And so we look to Jesus for salvation from our sins. We don't look to any other. We don't look to Muhammad because he's not named Jesus. We don't look to Buddha because he's not named Jesus. We don't look to Moses because he's not named Jesus. We don't look to any politician because they're not named Jesus. We have lost the awe and the power in the name of our Savior. Because you see what suffering does, and this is why it's the third phase of suffering. Suffering will reveal to you what you worship. Every time. Every person. When we're not suffering, it's easy to hide. When we're suffering, all the things that we try to hide are suddenly on display. That's one of the things that's so uncomfortable about messy people. I don't know if you've been a messy person before. There are times that we hit rock bottom and just we can't hold our lives together. And sometimes we even come to the realization that it shows and that other people can see that we can't hold our lives, our lives together. It's actually a really good place to be. Um, and it's actually the true Christian place to be because, you know, the gospel's outed you. We've already said you need saving. You're not your own savior and you're looking to Jesus, which means all of us are admitting, hey, I'm a mess. Um, and I'm probably closer to rock bottom than I could ever believe. But what happens is when you get there, God reveals to us the thing that we worship other than him whether it's our health, whether it's our intellect, whether it's our retirement fund, whether it's our children, whether it's our sports team, and sometimes it's all of those things. And it's in that moment that you see those things fail you in the midst of suffering that you need to know that there is something stronger, more beautiful, more awesome to look at than those things who will come through for you and it's not just a something, it's a someone, and he has a name, and he's personal. He's not just hope and joy. He is actually personified hope and joy. He's not truth, a way, a truth, a life. He is the way, the truth in life. He is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Your hope is very personal. And so when suffering decimates you, and you realize that you've been looking to other things, there is Jesus in all of his splendor and glory, and you can again look up from the trivial things of this world to him and find hope and joy in this true savior and know that he's with you. And again, it doesn't make things happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. You'll still need boxes of Kleenexes and you'll still have dark days and you still may need a counselor and whatever else. But in the midst of these things, you can still have a joy because you know your hope is named and personal. It is Jesus Christ one of the most devotional and powerful things that you can do is to pray in the name of Jesus, is to call on the name of Jesus, 
and to name yourself by Jesus. And you have no idea what it means to name yourself Christian. To say, I am taking that name upon me is the one of the most craziest things that you can do in our culture. You're confessing all kinds of stuff when you say that. You're confessing that you're a mess and you can't save yourself. You're confessing you believe in the narrative of the Bible. You're confessing that you believe a guy who entered the world 2,000 years ago was not just truly man, but truly God, lived a perfect life, died the death that you deserved, rose again to eternal life, is there at the right hand of his father and has made promises to you that he's preparing a place for you. And until you get there, has filled you with the Holy Spirit, is making you new and constantly calling you back from would-be saviors to give you life and joy now in reality, in this life. That's what it means to be, to be a follower of Jesus. And that's where Joseph was. Nothing about his circumstances changed. He just met an amazing Christ and a child that was still in his wife's womb. He not only was given biblical principles that he could apply to life, he wasn't only convinced of God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering, he was convinced that there was a personal Messiah who would be his, in whom he could put his trust, whom he would hold in his own arms and place his own lips on that child's forehead and give him a kiss and yet know that that little infant would grow to be his savior and his God, his hope and joy were certain, though he would still suffer dearly in that life. And that's given to you in this Advent. It is an amazing time of year. It's a time of year fraught with terrible and deep suffering. People are rarely um, forced to pretend as much as they do during the Christmas season. Um, we feel like we just have to be up all the time. And for most of us, Christmas, because there's so much family, um, and family's always a mess, it's just discouraging, or maybe you've lost loved ones this past year and there's not family where there used to be family, or maybe you remember family of 10 to 20 years ago, or maybe it's just a different life stage and it's different. This can be an incredibly discouraging, suffering time of year. And into that comes the angel's encouragement. Amen, amen, Jesus. Call on his name. Know you have hope and joy in whatever the midst that you're dealing with. If you can suffer well, if you can agree and believe in the Lord's sovereignty, so that you might know Christ now. So I encourage you to, to look to him, to place your faith in him, to worship him as more glorious than your would-be idols that the Lord is revealing um, to you. In him is life and life to the full. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We're encouraged and convinced that Jesus is our Lord. We